This program is brought to you by PersonalLifeMedia.com. Hi, and welcome to Green Talk, a podcast series from GreenLivingIdeas.com. Green Talk helps listeners in their efforts to lead more eco-friendly lifestyles through interviews with top vendors, authors, and experts from around the world. We discuss the critical issues facing the global environment today, as well as the technologies, products, and practices that you can employ to go greener in every area of your life. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Green Talk Radio. I'm your host, Sean Daly. Water is the source of all life. Most of us take it for granted, and few people would think of water as something that wars might be fought over, or something that might someday be less available or even unavailable to inhabitants of the planet. But films like the one created by my guest today are beginning to change that way of thinking. And, like an inconvenient truth did for bringing awareness to global warming and climate change, Blue Gold World Water Wars by director Sam Bazo is beginning to change the way people think of water. Sam Bazo is an American documentary filmmaker and also the owner of a production company called Purple Turtle Films, found online at purpleturtlefilms.com. His latest film, Blue Gold World Water Wars, premiered at the Vancouver International Film Festival last September. The film, narrated by Malcolm McDowell, takes a hard look at the coming and for some present water crisis facing our planet. One quick editorial note before we get started. This is actually a two-part interview with Sam. He has some fascinating stories that I want you to stay tuned for in part two, and that will release a few days afterwards on bluelivingideas.com, greenlivingideas.com, and other sites that syndicate the show. So Sam, first of all, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. So I, I watched the film last night, and I wasn't really sure what to expect, and I have to say that I was truly blown away and, and very disturbed in watching it. I think maybe even more so than I was when I first watched An Inconvenient Truth many years ago, because um, uh, there's just there's so much going on. It was a real eye-opener. Um, and uh, again, disturbing, but also I, there was a lot of hope in there. So well, let's talk about the film. First of all, I want to congratulate you on the success of the film. Uh, I know that it's starting to win awards, and, and it's made its rounds around the world with uh, the premieres and so forth. Yeah, no, thank you. And I'm really happy. Um, PBS Video is going to be doing the distribution. It's actually coming out Tuesday on the DVD. And I'm happy about that because I made it, I really wanted to get this to as wide a general audience as possible, you know, as opposed to specific. So I'm really happy to have that PBS branding there uh, to help with that. So, so where are you in the release? Uh, I know that it's gone around the, you know, sort of the uh, debuts and the film festivals. Is the official uh, DVD from North America, is that out yet? That's coming out Tuesday, April 7th. Okay. And um, they've been ordering it. You can buy it online at shoppbs.org, but it'll be in stores on the 7th. In, in, in watching the film, and there's so many issues that, that come up uh, around water. It's kind of amazing. And in, in a lot of ways, it feels like a perfect storm, no, no pun intended, um, <laughs> around, around water uh, for the planet. And that's sort of, I, I think, that it really drove home what a crisis we are facing. And I think what's somewhat surreal about it to me is how little of it is known to, to the general populace. Yeah, absolutely. When I am, <clears throat> I mean, I actually did a narrative films, my background uh, at film school and short films. And I was writing a script with a producer for the, a sequel to this sci-fi man who fell to earth. And that's an old sci-fi where David Bowie was an alien whose planet was running out of water. And they came here looking for our water. 
And we thought we'd be clever and think about 20 years from now, what if we started running out of water, which seemed you know, just preposterous to us. And Cy, the producer, found the book Blue Gold. And I read it, and that's when I, um, and like you, I was just blown away. What, what was actually happening had already happened, um, was, was bigger than anything we were coming up with for a science fiction. And, um, you know, that's when we put down the project, and I said, you know, I have a camera. I won this camera from Kevin Spacey from a short film contest. And so I had that, and I, you know, I knew I could, uh, could do a documentary fairly cheaply, I thought, just from traveling. And um, I just thought it had to get out there. I had to do it just clearly as a documentary and try to get the information out before going back to that project. So now uh, the, the authors of the book, I'm curious how you first made the connection. I think it's a Maud Barlow, who's a very famous water expert, speaks for the United mm -hmm. Nations and pretty much everybody the, that uh, needs an expert on water speaking. Uh, and then Tony Clark. Tell us about that relationship and, and how you first came to know them. I got very lucky. Once I found the book, I, um, I contacted the publisher listed in the book and I figured that they would want a lot of money and that would be that, you know, but I thought I'd contact them. But as it turned out, the first publisher who I contacted had uh, lost the book somehow and sold it to somebody. And in that process, they didn't have the film rights. So the author still had the film rights. And uh, they were immediately friendly and excited that I was going to, uh, to do this. And um, in fact, I started the film by trying to figure out what their schedule would be going around in the fall around the world. And um, so there was this timeline to get started. And I found a, a funder after I had the author's blessings. I found a funder. And I bought all the equipment on credit cards, all, uh, the, all the plane tickets on credit cards. And then the night before the shoot started, my funder backed out completely. And I was actually going to uh, back out of the project. I was going to return everything. And it's a, it's a semi, it sounds like a corny story, except that it's true. But I was going to go tell my wife it was night before shooting that it was all off. And my son, who was three years old at the time, I devote the film to him because of this. And he, he had woken up from sleep, and he was in the hall, and I said, why are you awake? And he said he was thirsty. And it just uh, and I just got him a glass of water, and it was in that process that I decided uh, I just never said anything. I figured the money will come as I go, and I got up and kept shooting because all the plans were there. I just had it all on credit. But once the authors found out I was doing that, they helped me find a couple grants, but it's still been a struggle uh, since then. But it's certainly something I'm glad I did. Uh, knowing that I would uncover all the things you saw in the film, I don't know if I would have got it started knowing the scope of it. But once you got started, it seemed I had to go on a global level and find as many of these stories as I could. And uh, I was surprised that it was very easy to find stories. It was hard choosing them. I mean, the first cut was four hours. There's tons that isn't there. And uh, uh, it's just amazing uh, how much of this is going on, as you said, with little or none known about it. Well, it's amazing, and it's very well edited. I mean, I think that it doesn't it doesn't meander at all, and and it's uh, it seems that uh, again, I, there are so many areas that are covered. It's it's uh, almost at some point you're like, stop! I can't believe there are this many crises around one uh, topic, you know. Uh, but but and certainly Maud and and um, Tony are both appear in the film as on camera experts. And they really represent two different perspectives, and I appreciate it. He's more of the impassioned uh, guy, and she is this really well-spoken expert who just uh, really knows her stuff. I mean, she's she's a true scientist and clearly knows what she's talking about. Um, and so together, I thought that they really presented um, the facts very well. And it doesn't it doesn't did not come off to me as alarmist in any way, um, but the facts themselves are 
alarming. So let's talk about the specifics of the film, if we could. I would like to dive in, first of all, let's just summarize, because I said there are so many, let's just summarize maybe some of the, the basic premises of why we're in this situation and what that situation is. Um, it seems that we're, the, the, the film starts off by talking about the desertification that's occurring uh, of the planet, that we are essentially desertifying. And, and, and right. That's yeah, the, the, what I liked about the book is broken up into three parts, uh, the crisis, the politics, the way forward. I added water wars in there because that's the ultimate end of the politics and what I ended up focusing on. But yeah, the crisis, I mean, what really we need to think about is that we're pumping groundwater much faster than we are re than rain can replenish it and we're pumping it mostly through agriculture needs and through uh, industry needs people don't think about cars needing water you know uh, everything you make need the factories need water to make it and so you have these giant giant uh, industrial world pumping much more water from the ground that's going back in and creating a desert um, the water that's used goes down the drain and most of the time goes to the ocean um, and then what we end up having uh, when you have a desert is when it does rain, the water just slides right off. It doesn't soak back into the ground, and so it goes to the ocean through rivers. And what we end up having is an ocean with all the fresh water, which is why you see one reason you see increased hurricanes and increased drastic uh, weather. Um, we, we've gotten used to blaming everything on carbon, and, and, and that's very important. I'm so glad that we're hitting the carbon issue. But what, what a lot of these experts are saying is even if we got rid of all carbon emission tomorrow, we're going to have weather change. We're going to have climate change because as long as we have a desertifying land and hurricanes over the ocean, that's not, you know, the, the, that's going to increase the, the weather change that we're seeing. And then we're also seeing ancillary issues and, and not to divert this, but then there's also issues like the relation between the increase of CO2 acidifying the oceans and then affecting the fish population. You know, so these things yeah, are also the, connected. The pollution, yeah, the pollution angle is definitely connected with uh, with carbon. So what I mean, the important thing is, so what if we're turning to a desert? Is that we have so much fresh water that's always been on the planet? It's never going to be more or less. It's a finite amount. And the thing is, what's usable to us? So some people say, well, we can never run out because it's always the same. But if we're dumping it, if it's all in the ocean or if it's all polluted, those are the two main you know issues. If you get down to it, then we can't use it. We don't have access to it for a, po a growing population, and that's when the, that's really what the crisis is about: is our population's growing, uh, and yet we're running out of water for it. And as that continues, what sources of drinking water we do have, who controls them, becomes uh, incredibly important to the whole political structure in the next twenty years. Right, so, water is not water; it, it's not all water is the same, and that we're basically we're perverting water that would be otherwise usable by life and taking it and putting it into a state where it's not usable. And so right, either by letting it go to the ocean or um, from overground water use or by polluting it to the point where we can't use it. Right. And you, and you talk about the ways in which that's happening. And, and there are, unfortunately, the, the, the means are myriad, uh, as it turns out. So you mentioned the hard soil runoff. So as the desertification occurs, the soil gets harder. That causes more runoff to the rivers. And then l let's talk about, if we could talk about the damming of the rivers, which I did not know about this. Yeah, the me too. At first, at first, you know, going into this, I think it helped me not to know anything because, um, I, you know, there's so many times if you're, if you know a little bit about it, you kind of skip over the basics. And so I really was careful. If I didn't understand something, I wanted to get to the bottom of it. So I had no idea why are dams bad? What's so, what's so bad about a dam? It's getting clean electricity. Why is that a problem? And, um, 
especially since if the problems if the, if one of the problems getting fresh water to the ocean, then won't dams be a help by stopping it even you know but the bottom line is um dams are cause they're they're stopping the water flow and what what rivers do is they carry nutrients downstream and so that keeps the land fertile uh, so that um so that you can grow crops so that it doesn't desertify. And so when you block a dam, you're blocking a giant reservoir of water. The downstream now is going to become more eroded uh, just because there's no nutrients getting to it. And the water behind the dam becomes stagnant and unusable itself, uh, highly polluted with mercury from the flooding of the area. So you're really um, you're, you're making the desert problem on both sides of the dam. And we have 50,000 dams worldwide, giant ones. It's crazy. So we've become so... Uh, dependent on this for electricity that you can really see one of the solutions presented are micro turbines or there are many other kinds of ways to get electricity from flowing water without blocking it and I could see in the future I mean uh, removal of dams being a major part of the solution as we go solar more you know it will just make more sense but um, uh, it, it's it's hard it's taken so much time to make these dams it's hard to think about removing them but it's something we'll have to deal with well I can only imagine too that there are like many things are gonna, there's going to be pressure from uh, both private organizations, private companies, and, and government bodies uh, against that. I mean, that, that can't be an easy thing to do to dismantle a dam. Well, and also, it's interesting, um, one thing I had to kind of cut from the film, but one of the big solutions for this uh, in Slovakia, Dr. Kravchik made this thing called the Blue Alternative in the film, where, and that was in response to a dam. Uh, in Slovakia, the government wanted to put up this giant dam that was going to flood uh, a lot of villages and just, you know, re displace a lot of people. And um, so he said, well, this is ridiculous. We can, we, can, um, we can solve this issue by just keeping more water in the ground, by, by replenishing groundwater. So that's where he started. They started by terracing the land into little water catchments, which allowed rainwater to be caught, seep into the ground, and keep the groundwater you know, in its place. And um, that plan is really important. I think that's the root solution to everything, because uh, if there's no demand for water, if everyone's got it around them, then there's not going to be this ownership problem, which we'll get into with the politics of who, who controls it. And, um, but that came as a direct alternative to a dam, and they did fight it uh, very much um, because they, there's a lot of money in making a dam. Uh, a lot of people get paid, and, and it's a political issue of its own. One of the experts on camera it was the woman from India. I do not recall her name. Vandata uh, Shiva. She's amazing. Yeah. And she was talking about – she was drawing an analogy that uh, – she was talking about the changes to the hydrologic cycle um, as was Tony Clark and that also that really she would th we should think of this as uh, that, that rivers are to the earth – uh, as the circulatory system is to the human body, and that by damming up the river, it's like clogging the arteries, and and, and that's have, a heart attack, and that's a heart and attack. The planet is, is headed for it's having spasms of a heart attack in a sense, yeah. which is a good analogy. It's absolutely accurate. Yeah, and the idea that these rivers are carrying these nutrients into the ecosystem, and we block them up, we naturally it just makes sense. I mean, it makes makes logical sense. You don't really even have to be any kind of an expert for that to appeal to you, your logic. Um, so let's switch topics. I'd like to talk a little bit about also the, the sinkhole issue and some of the issues that by pulling the water out, which is what you mentioned happening, we're, we're pulling the water out of um, our, our watersheds and that one of the things that's happening and an example was given of uh, a historical example of a fabled Atlantean city of Ubar, a city that disappeared and was later found by um, archaeologists. It was found collapsed into the desert sand and that was from – they had been also pumping out groundwater 
which created some giant sinkholes into the city. And that you, you pointed out in the film, or somebody pointed out in the film, that, uh, that that's actually happening today in, in places even like Florida in the United States. Yeah, they're giant. What happens, I didn't understand, starting this, I didn't even understand how groundwater works. It's not so much that there's a, a lake underground in a big cavern. It's, it's in the mud and the sand. The water's kind of mixed, and it just gets, you know, it's within the dirt. So when you dry that out, you have air pockets within the dirt structure that are it used to have water. And eventually, that, that if there's too much weight, will just collapse. And in Florida, you'll have entire, there was a picture in there, I forget how big it was. It looked like six city blocks just that totally collapsed into a giant sinkhole. But what also happens is what's less evident is that entire regions will just slowly and evenly go down. Like uh, in the San Joaquin Valley, there was a, there's a picture in the film of where it was in 1970, the entire horizon landscape of farmland. And it's gone down some 50 feet just from slowly subsiding. Um, and so, we're, you know, but as far as the uh, dangers of collapsing cities, Mexico City is also an example in there. And that's the most drastic that I see. Um, they're, they're one of the first major cities to run out of, that will run out of water. Sydney's another one and um, uh, Beijing. But they're pump, they've pumped so much that you can see churches are just slanting uh, entire buildings. The whole, you know, you really see it dramatically how, how this city's starting to collapse. You actually had a, a picture on there of a tilted, uh, you could see the picture yeah. of the church and not even with the ground, it was a, it was a visible tilt. Yeah, so it's getting very evident, um, and, which is in one sense good because people need to see problems before they deal with them. And I think one big issue with it being underground and groundwater is we never see groundwater. So it's hard to imagine this, what it's doing to us by by draining it so quickly. Well, I think it is that out of sight, out of mind nature of this that, that makes it um, so uh, sort of insidious, you know, in a lot of ways. So, uh, and it's funny, you mentioned uh, the, the place in Florida, and that was actually Winter Park, which is near where my brother lives. So that was extra disturbing because <laughs> I was like, I oh, felt no. like I needed to pick up the phone and call my brother Craig <laughs> and let him know, you're sitting on top of a sinkhole. Um, oh, yeah, exactly. So I think, again, and I talked about this feeling like a perfect storm, another aspect of that was the fact that of the overpopulation and, and migration to, to cities of the, our population, which we, is well known. But, and then about cities themselves sort of exacerbating this because you have concrete in cities. And so you have this hard pack that obviously concrete cannot absorb the water. So we're, we're essentially we're interfering with the hydrologic cycle by paving everything. And Which is yeah, that. I never thought of that either until this film. And um, Dr. Kravchik again, he did a he did a sample. He started studying since World War II when when we really started paving everything after World War II and things got more and more industrial. Started studying in his hometown and in Slovakia how much water was being wasted just by that. And then you expand that to the world, and it, it really is its own issue. Um, and it goes it's it's an easy issue to see because pavement you can tell why water wouldn't be going into the ground, and it really points out. Um, why water catchments within cities? There's even a permeable pavement solution that they have, where there is some weight, there is some pavement there where the water can seep through and be filtered, and that's what we're going to have to see. But um, yeah, our own our own desertification of pavement, in a way, is also uh, was an interesting aspect to this. Yeah. Well, I have so many other questions for you, and I want to talk about water privatization and water rights and all of that good stuff. But we're going to take a quick break right here, and I will be right back. My guest is Sam Bazo. He's the director of Blue Gold World Water Wars, a new documentary that will be out soon on DVD, hopefully by the time you're hearing this. And you can find it on their website at bluegold-worldwaterwars.com or on the purpleturtlefilms.com site. 
or I, I suppose on Amazon.com. Is that right, Sam? Is it on there? Or uh, shoppbs.org. Uh, PBS has it up and also at Amazon.com. Okay, great. We'll be right back on Green Talk Radio. Thanks, everyone. Back on Green Talk Radio, this is Sean Daly. We're talking on water today. I'm speaking with American documentary filmmaker Sam Bazo. He's the director of Blue Gold World Water Wars. Sam, we were talking before the break about the film, and we were focusing on some of the basic issues around why we have desertification, um, the depletion of our watersheds and the runoff to water, things like this. I think the, the elephant in the room we haven't talked about so far and I wanted to save it for after the break because it deserves its own segment, is uh, water privatization and the threat of that many perceive of multinational corporations that are, as many say, stealing our water essentially while we sleep. So let's just start with the, some of the issues that are brought up in the film uh, and some of the examples of things that have happened. If I'm to understand this correctly, what, what is happening is these large multinational corporations, and, and there's a big three that are sort of uh, mentioned, that Suez, uh, Veolia, which is also Vivendi, uh, and RWE Thames, right. and that the, these companies in various forms, and, and other companies as well, uh, not just those three, um, have basically what they are doing is going to various places that are, they are they've identified this coming crisis and the, and the value of this, commo- this finite commodity and depleting commodity of water, as a profit incentive, and that they're essentially going in and they're going to poor countries, or even in the United States, in the case of the Great Lakes and, and in Illinois, and saying, hey, listen, we want you to privatize uh, your water. And some sort of exchange happens, sometimes a bribe of politicians, and as it happened, you gave the example of an Illinois uh, governor, or, or going into third world countries, for example, and uh, the World Bank essentially giving uh, favors for uh, reducing national debt in exchange for the privatization of water so that these private, these multinational private corporations can come in and essentially uh, own the water and then export it, sell it, and then even sell it back to, to the indigenous people for a profit. Um, that's unbelievable to me. Is that where we are? Yeah, it, it, that's what amazed me about the story is, um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, complaint or a lot of um, focus on you know the value or, or problem with global economy in general, with global trade and and with um, you know sweatshops in certain countries. And when water enters that field, though, I think they're really crossing the system's crossing a line that it, it really can't come back from because people just won't ha- they won't take it. We'll 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 handle gas happening, uh, the prices being raised and everything. Because honestly, when we run out of oil, we'll finally go to solar. I think there's you know we'll we'll go on. Um, but with water. What they found and what they didn't realize is people just won't stand for it. Um, and and just to go backtrack a little, they it started you know French started privatization started in with Napoleon in France and with that's why the big companies are there. And it was it wasn't so bad when it was local. What happened in the Reagan Thatcher era is when we started this global economy. That's when they expanded and they did exactly what you said. They said, oh well, Bolivia needs water. Let's go buy all their water and. Um, then you know they buy the entire system. It's cheaper to deliver than it is to maintain. That's why you have a big pollution problem. You know a lot, which we could talk about about Mexico in a second. Remind me. But they um, and then they end up raising the prices to the point where in Bolivia uh, they were paying more for water than for food. They were paying half their salary for water. And and eventually a bootmaker named Oscar uh, Oliveira uh, started this protest, which started as a protest and ended up taking it to the streets. 
which turned into a revolution. And the government actually sent the military out there to protect the company and started putting snipers in the crowd and shooting people. Um, eventually, they were, the, the government realized they're going to be overthrown and they kicked out the company. But it was a great, it's a very good example of how, um, uh, how this can go horribly wrong. And what, what hit me is, yes, it's the corporations, but on, I do want to stress, though, you know, corporations by nature are there to make a profit. They're not social service agencies. So the other issue, and the big, maybe the bigger one, arguably, is why are the government selling to them? Right. You know, it's the government's job to take care of people. So if Fabiola comes to you and wants to buy all your water, why did Bolivia sell to them? And that's where you get the corruption. Most of the time it's for an influx of cash directly, a lot of corruption stories I told in the film. And, and that's the juggling act we're going to see here, is holding our governments accountable for just not selling the water in the first place. What was particularly egregious to me were the countries, for example, in Africa uh, that were not able to sell their goods at fair value prices, even goods labeled as fair trade, for example, because uh, in my understanding from, from the film was that what, what's happening is that they are being told you cannot charge the tariffs, the export tariffs, for them to be able to pay off their debt. And so they're not able to sell at a fair price their goods and so they can't make as much money and so and then uh, and then that they're then exploited also on the water privatization side so that these these companies come in so it's kind of like they're being they're being uh, completely exploited and taken advantage of yeah that's important is um again it goes back to why we're seeing the entire global economic system challenge or the way it operates in that again from world war ii debts that world banks set up uh, Africa will have to, they can't charge as much or can't make as much profit off, and the example in the film was tea, but you have diamonds, you have gold, you have oil, you have everything, um, because they need to pay high tariffs to pay off that debt, and so they're being forced to grow cash crops in order just to have any input of money. That, of course, uses all their fresh water for these crops, and they and the government there is also corrupt, so they, they're not even... They don't even have money to have pipes to go to their house, and yet they have a lot of water in Kenya, for instance. And so they're being forced to use water to grow roses, uh, used as an example, to, to go to Europe. Europe. Europe doesn't have enough clean water to grow roses, which people there don't realize. And so they're getting it all from Lake Navasha in Kenya. And, um, and it's such a huge industry there. There was another filmmaker brought up in the film, Joan Root, who was killed. Uh, trying to bring this to light, and and um, regarding the by, Lake Navasha issue, that was her. That was yeah. her cause. Yeah, it was her cause for many reasons. Uh, also, because the hippopotamus there are dying, everything's dying as you drain that lake. But it, you know, again, that 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 someone's been killed over a rose exportation. It's just, it's just crazy, and that's where we need to look at virtual water, which is brought up in the film. And what this is is that it's not just fresh water itself; it's what fresh water is used to make. Because uh, you know you're, you you need to make food from water, and then you export that food. That's you're really exporting the water that that took to make, and we need to get that into our heads too. Is is it's what water is used for in industry and in agriculture, and the exporting of that as well. Now there have been some happy stories here of of successfully taking on these multinational corporations and. Uh, and to, to varying degrees of success, but there was there was one uh, that sort of went well and then didn't go well, and that was the one uh, around the Great Lakes. Again, this also affects here in the United States. This isn't all happening for people listening in and in remote places like Africa. Um, there was a, there was a situation uh, that happened uh, around Nestle, I believe, coming in and being given water rights for pumping water out of the Great Lakes, and uh, there was allegedly some, I think, uh, 
politicians taking bribes for that to happen. And then there was uh, a gentleman, he had spoken up against it, and his mother was also featured in the film. Uh, yes, uh, Terry Swear of um, Michigan um, Conservation of Water, they, um, they're the ones that fought Nestle. And her son, well, let, let me set up something real quick sure. about the Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, it's very important to understand this isn't just in the third world. And there's been some people that say it's almost easier to fight in the third world than here. Because in the third world, you'll get revolutions. You'll get people will take physical action because they, they have to. Like in Bolivia uh, where they take to the streets. and Yeah, they because they have to. So in a sense, the fights, at least it gets over with and it's up front. With here, we have a legal system. So it's fought in courts and it's fought... You know, the corporations have so much power and so much money here that it, 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 in some ways it's harder. So the Great Lakes have so much fresh water and it's jointly, you know, Canada and the U.S. are both on that border. So there's a lot of contention between Canada's worried about in the future America taking all of its water or, or starting to pump it all down because we can't manage our own and we're running out of our own. Um, the Great Lakes being the major source of that becomes a hot spot and you'll see You'll see we've set up military bases around there, a military base that, that Canada didn't like us doing that. A lot of the mayors didn't like that happening, but it, it is a hot spot area, and the companies know that. So when you're dealing with a bottled water company like Nestle, the technology has gotten to the point where uh, a, a, you know, a plant that is set up now can pump so much water that it will drain an entire area's water. Now, you know, in the beginning of the bottled water industry, that wasn't the case. The technology wasn't there that it could really hurt anything. It was more of... And that's why bottled water itself, I, um, I'm hesitant to say, you know, I think we have to focus on really what's wrong with it. If someone's just pumping locally, selling locally to the local area, then it's really just a consumer issue of being charged a thousand times more than it's worth. It's a, it's a scam issue. Right. But when you get these huge companies that can pump enough to drain a whole area, that's becoming a bigger issue. And that's what happened in, uh, first they tried to set up in Wisconsin, Nestle did, and it was a... There was a retire a group of retired people, um, you know, deer hunters, Republicans, which I love. They're just these old people, and they and they fought them out. They actually somehow raised enough of an issue that the governor, who initially welcomed them because it brings a lot of money, was kind of forced to kick them out. And that, and that was a, the biggest. That's the only success story we have in America so far. But they ran. You know, they went immediately to Michigan, learned from their mistakes there. They and just being started, the company. Yeah, Nestle moved from Wisconsin, where it got kicked out, right into Michigan. Set up right away. Didn't wait for permission. Started pumping. They realized it's easier because it was you know they didn't. Have, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission, right. and they just set up base right away. And people like Terry Swears, they saw the water tables dropping. Started a group to fight against this, but they're just regular people. So they had garage sales. They have Texas Hold'em tournaments. They raised a million dollars and uh, to fight Nestle, this giant corporation. Now in that fight, what you mentioned with Terry Swears' son is Nestle started throwing slap suits at some of the people, anyone who spoke against them, uh, you know, and, and quite, you know, they say it's a coincidence, but it's not quite, you know, the, the son of the person who's leading this group against them, throwing slap suits at them to try to scare them to stop, uh, to stop fighting them. But they did end up winning in court, which was amazing. Uh, they, they won the case. They said, you're going to stop pumping now. They were very excited. But within three days, that was overturned. Or the injunction was overturned, and they they could pump, but they were limited to two hundred and fifty thousand gallons a minute or something, which would still drain the area. But the fact that that's why it's somewhat harder in the U.S. Some people say because it took them a million dollars and a year or two to get their day in court, they win, and then within three days, the, the company's up and running again. 
and you don't see this in the news or anything. So how do you fight in that system? Uh, it becomes an issue we're going to be dealing with more and more. Yeah, it's it's a slap for people who aren't familiar. It's actually an acronym. Well, I I never knew this. It's a strategic yeah. lawsuit against public participation. Uh, yeah. So so these people in a public hearing would be asked, "What do you think of this? What do you think of this?" And they'd say, "I hate it. It's no good. You're taking all our water." And then they would throw us this slap suit at them. And, uh, and it's really there. The fact that companies are allowed to do this is ridiculous. But it's really there to try to intimidate. Um, activists from speaking their mind and it goes directly against our, our right to free speech if you think about it and also um, they don't expect to win but they can tie these people up in court forever uh, and, and in, in all these cases though they never went through with the slap suit it was directly an intimidation uh, tactic as the film pointed out they just let it go didn't you know and eventually they would they it just went away but the fact that they can put that kind of pressure on people to 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 just uh, speak their mind especially when it's over their water uh, is something we have to look at as well. And it comes about because the executive producer of this film, Mark Akbar, he made one of my favorite documentaries, The Corporation. And he and um, in that film, it really talks about how corporations in our country, for whatever reason, have the right of a citizen. So that's why they can just buy a, a plot of land and pump whatever's under there, even though they have a factory that's pumping way more than any individual ever could. Right. And so right. that's why all these problems, the, the all the problems need to be solved through legislative is what I've come to realize. The, it's really legislative, mass legislative change is the only way to solve something this big. And it, But it could happen easily. That's the good news is with legislation, it could be solved rather quickly. Right. But, but, the, it's the, getting there, you know? but the problem is that – and a lot of people would assert not to sound like you know paranoid conspiracy theorists. But the problem is that there are lobbies involved here. These are major <laughs> multinational corporations which have lobbies and have political power. And so they have a profit motive. And so we're expecting legislation to come from politicians who are being lobbied. Uh, by these, and people don't realize the size of the lobbies. They think, oh, what, a water company? What, who's that? I, you know, they're used to other types of companies being large, uh, military industrial complex type corporations, but, you know, the, these, co these companies are huge. They're just a little bit more behind the scenes. Yeah, and that's why, uh, you know, and they, they bribe the third world countries directly, but yeah, there's lobbies. We call our bribery lobbying, and so we can, you know, they are, they are, um, they have influence there. Again, what I, that's what fascinates me about water is I think, once they put water into this system, I think we're going to see the system really be challenged because where people have kind of sat back for it with special interest group dealing with oil or dealing with anything that we don't need. When it comes to water, what, what we've seen through these success stories is people just won't take it because they can't. Once you start taking their water or trying to sell their water back to them, they won't take it. We will stand up because you have to. And that's where I see the real big chance for change here. Um, where we've allowed lobbying to happen before, we won't allow it here when it comes down to it. But the question is, how bad does it have to get before we, uh, before it gets there? And, and that's really the big issue. Well, that concludes part one of my two-part interview with American director and independent filmmaker Sam Bazo of Blue Gold World Water Wars. While you're waiting for part two, which will be on our site in a few days, you can check out the film's website at bluegold-worldwaterwars.com. The film is now in general release for the DVD in North America. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next time on Green Talk Radio. Thanks, as always, to everyone listening in today. Remember, for more free on-demand podcasts, articles, videos, and other information related to living a greener lifestyle, visit our website at www.greenlivingideas.com. 
We'd also love to hear your comments, feedback, and questions. Send us an email at editors at greenlivingideas.com. Find more great shows like this on personallifemedia.com.